You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Are you guys dealing with forest fires where you live? Not yet. No. Not yet. It's not no, it's just Well, we had the the original, you know, uh, the early ones that we had to smoke in in the Boise area uh, from the, the fires up north. And I actually was traveling up in Montana at the time and uh it was pretty nice to see all the thunderheads and all the the rain up in uh, northern montana and uh, on my approach to the boone and crockett ranch where we were doing an event up there i saw fire crews heading south so it's a good sign you know um that that the fire crews were heading south so uh we're all cleared up from that first round no that's good that's good yeah it seems seems like we don't really have a lot going on in southern BC, but it was northern Alberta um, real early in the springtime. It was like those smokes, uh, fire from those smoke from those fires, uh, was moving like across Canada, and then there was ones in in uh, the Prairie Provinces. The other Prairie Provinces were those ones that were cycling down into New York City, and that was all main mainstream news and stuff. And and uh, and then it's like then it rained and then they had uh there's floods in places in northern alberta now so towns are evacuated because of floods and crazy there's no winning no for sure (laughs) no it's always something so weather's always a good a good icebreaker to talk about so uh yeah it's going to be different in a couple of months from now so i think when we did our first podcast if i remember uh, Chris, you were just, you were sweating it out. I think you were like, man, is this so hot? I remember I just, for whatever reason, I'm just seemed like you were, you were sweltering and we were all doing fine. So <laughs> Leland Brown and Chris Parrish, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure. Glad to be here. You guys are the leads and the co-founders and creators of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And uh, you were on the podcast a few years ago. Uh, I can't even remember exactly. Like, I guess it's sort of Has like the volcanic thing. It's like, it's, it's uh, well, it's, it was like before COVID or after COVID. And it was definitely, we were, we were well before, before that even. So yeah, it's a uh, time, time flies. Uh, really excited to have you back on and, um, kind of catch up on the state of what's happening with non-lead and maybe dig into a few more aspects of it and the science and stuff that we didn't cover in the last show. So, uh, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, B.C., Get the best of both worlds with Alpine Toyota. They combine high-quality vehicles and services with a genuine commitment to our community. Their team is there to give you the best customer service in the automotive industry. They're proud to offer a wide selection of trucks, tires, and services that are sure to meet your needs. Plus, they're dedicated to giving back to the community by supporting us here at the Hunter Conservationist, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and therefore, conversations about conservation like we're about to have <laughs> thanks, thanks alpine so alpine we, we always, always uh not always a lot of times we'll kind of give 
Alpine Toyota some ideas for their Tacoma trucks, like a wrap, you know, that kind of goes with the theme of, of our podcast. So this one I'm kind of envisioning um, like the, the, the non-lead partnership wrap on a Toyota Tacoma. And so what we need is like um, molecules, copper molecules, right? And, the, and then they're, 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 they're transitioning into, into like a, a, a bullet that's traveling, you know, and they show the, the, the high capture of a bullet. So we've got the side of the vehicle's got these copper molecules that morph in, into a bullet. So uh, that with would the be vapor my trail behind idea. it. <laughs> with what? With the vapor trail behind it. Yeah, no, it's, for sure. And that, that's kind of yeah. like the molecules into the vapor trail and then yeah. they form the bullet. I well, think that would be pretty cool. And then North American non lead. Yeah, and you've got to continue, continue it on through the ballistics gel, right? So you can see the wound channel, you know? Oh, there you go. Like, yeah, the, the, yeah. it started the back of the truck and then towards the front would be the ballistics gel and then, and then the bullet would be yeah. right by the, by the nose yeah. of the truck. And like yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what, we'll, we'll see how that one sells. Um, and then, and then we'll talk, uh, uh, commission on the, on the wrap on, the, on the Toyota <laughs> truck there. <laughs> I, they could just they could just give us one of those Tacomas and we'll call it even. You know, sure, you know. cruise cruise around in the in the in the ballistics gel truck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, cool. So maybe just for uh, listeners kicking off because we got lots of new people following along. Um, maybe they haven't listened to the podcast from a few years ago, but maybe give us uh, a summary and a breakdown of the partnership. Uh, how it came about, what your mission is, and kind of some of the things that you work on. I was just getting ready to point to you, Brown. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, do it, right? I'll take we it. Go. Well, I, I think, you know, to, to lead it off, I think, um, you know, we always hear people saying, and I've parroted it myself, that hunters are the original conservationists. And I think uh, I can confidently speak for both Leland and myself, you know, we entered into uh, conservation and became conservation scientists because of our love for the outdoors and the, the places that house both us and the critters that we love. And some of those critters we hunt and others of them we uh, are concerned about. And it's the holistic approach to uh, learning about your environment and making sure that we're passing something to future generations that we can be proud of. And so the, the, the various inputs to conservation science and how it ties to hunting is kind of the perfect storm for us because we're, we're hunters and anglers and we're conservationists and uh, we, we bring a new level and a new layer of information to the game. And we hope that our efforts at the North American on the partnership for one example is, is allowing for a, a higher degree of, of conversation and information to our fellow hunters and anglers uh, to use that information to make more informed decisions because we all know that we have in all of our hearts wanting to leave it better than we found it and pass something on to the next generation. So sp specifically the, the non-lead piece is the research that we've been a part of and the campaign that we've been a part of to share the information in, in an effective way that hunters learn about the, the potential impacts of lead-based products that we use in our sporting gear and the potential impacts to wildlife and ecosystems 
And then most importantly, the opportunity we have to curtail unintended negative consequences of, of some of those products and uh, experimenting with new products. You know, we all are familiar with experimenting with new products if it's going to increase our edge, right? Like, like this hook will catch every walleye or this bullet will effectively put down every animal we target. Well, we can also do that with a conscientious mind uh, and, and using the, the latest and greatest science and do things that uh, allow us to continue to practice and honor our heritage in hunting and angling and do it in a, in a more effective way for conservation. And that's probably the, the most abstract mm-hmm. uh, uh, representation I've ever given for what the non-lead partnership is about. But it's been a long <laughs> couple of weeks, guys, so bear with us. Yeah. I mean, we can um, break it down to, you know, we're Yeah, building. Leland, add, add to that, too. So you yeah. do a lot of the um, the range yeah. stuff with, with folks. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, really what it comes down to is we're, we're building the, the number of hunters and anglers who are voluntarily choosing non-lead ammunition in a way that helps protect our conservation history as sportsmen and women um, and also protects the tradition itself. I mean, that's what it comes, that's what it comes down to. We want to see hunting and angling these engagement with the outdoors continue for the next century and longer. And we want to see us doing it in a way that, you know, protects and is good stewardship of all the other critters out there as well. And that's what this is all about for us is keeping both of those things in mind and, and, building a coalition of hunters and anglers who are choosing to make those decisions. Yeah. So lots of education, um, bringing in the science, cause we are seeing more and more studies, um, coming out, talking about the impacts of lead, uh, the, the unintended consequences of, lead in the environment from hunter's ammunition. Um, most people are probably familiar with, you know, the California condor story uh, and the changes in ammunition in California be- because of that. And so there's, there's a, I see a strong education component uh, talking, you know, bringing that, that science, uh, those impacts directly to hunters. And then the work that you do doing shooting demonstrations with the ballistic gel that we were talking about and and using monolithic bullets to me that there's an education piece there but i also think a tremendous amount of what you're doing with those is it it's like your myth myth busting because i don't know whether you know you probably well versed in sort of the mind barriers that are out there in the hunting community about um you know, monolithic bullets and stuff. So you, you're just saying, let's, let's put people in front of this stuff and, and watch me shoot and look at the bullets and recover them out of water barrels and, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and then actually from some of the the hunts and stuff you've been on, like the proof, you know, here, here we go. Here's, here's how the bullets are performing. So do you think that's accurate? Would you call it myth? education and myth busting is kind of a two two fronts that you've been working on yeah but I, I would extend it probably even further because there's a lot of myths around all ammunition right it's these stories that about how different bullets work and it doesn't matter if it's a lead bullet or it's a monolithic non-lead bullet um, 
some people, you know, just, you know, we have the groups of people who are around and we tell each other what we believe is happening. And sometimes that's accurate and sometimes it's not. Um, and that can be true for whatever you're using. So really it's establishing a, a baseline of understanding how bullets work and then applying that knowledge across the different materials that we can choose, whether it's shot or bullets, um, you know, single projectiles like rifle bullets, so that we can use, you know, the good information, the ballistic information, to actually do a careful review of how bullets are working. Um, and then you can apply that down the road to whatever choice you're making, right? Because now you have that foundation in place uh, which I think makes every hunter a little bit better um, when you know, considering the, the options we have in front of us. And it's yeah. tricky. Do you, do you find... Uh, it's, tricky it's tricky because it's like, uh, you know, if, if I'm telling you that uh, my brand of pickup is better than the one that you and your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather ran, um, there's nothing more convincing. You can talk all you want. But until your truck and you pull your buddy out of the mud because they got stuck, uh, those are groundbreaking things like, oh, my gosh, that Dodge just pulled out of Ford or that Ford just pulled out of Chevy. Right. I mean, we're testing what we think we know and what we're confident with based on our own personal experience. But here's the beauty of science. Science amplifies that. Because we're increasing the sample size, no different than having more people at the barbershop or the coffee shop discussing what they think works because of their own personal experiences, but their sample size is limited. But you combine all those sample sizes and you have a broader conversation and you get you get a, an opening of minds and you get people willing to try new things. And then what I just described there is science. And so when we add science to our assumptions and we test our assumptions and we're willing to test our assumptions and look at the data, read the science, interpret it for ourselves, see other people take hearing their takes on it, this is our evolution. And when people say, oh, no, I'm, I'm stuck in my ways. No, you're not. You're carrying around $2,000 optics. Your great-granddad didn't have that, and he was a real hunter because he, too, put meat in the freezer. And then two generations before that, they didn't even have freezers. So let's let's not forget that science has allowed us to grow. And yet we're in this 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 realm now where people are saying, oh, well, that's junk science. And I contest that. Science is science. Interpretation might be junk, but science is science. And we use it even at the barbershop. Right, right. Do, do you find working with people at the rifle range, uh, you know, and actually like literally seeing this stuff unfold as opposed to writing an article about, you know, lead bullet and a copper bullet and, you know, blah, 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 weight retention and all that. When people actually, you know, see it firsthand and uh, is, is that, is that making a big, big difference in your guys' opinions? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that beats hands-on experience, right? I mean, you're looking at, just how how people learn um you know some people will learn by reading and that's a great tool but most people you know what is more most impactful to them is a live experience of how things are working and being able to see it in real real time and ask the questions that they have right and that's a big one 
um, a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of questions around this topic. And a lot of folks don't have access to the resources to get answers to those without, you know, having to spend a bunch of time on the internet digging through and then trying to figure out who's a trustworthy source of information. But if you show them with their own two eyes what you're talking about and you say, look, this is what we're talking about. Here's what our options are. Here's how they're working. Now you can make a choice because you have that information. It's a much easier process for people to work their way through than sitting there reading a bunch of articles and going, well, you know, I guess that makes sense, but I've never really seen that because I've been digging through, you know, my deer at, you know, eight o'clock at night right after sundown. And I'm just trying to get that thing gutted and quartered out so I can get it out of the woods and in the freezer. They're not looking for all this stuff that we're talking about. It's really about doing this work in advance and seeing it in advance. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of I the mean, ones that's... <clears throat> yeah. Podcasts one of the ones like that's really great, visually striking. What is that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so what I was going to say is one of the ones that's really visually striking for me is the um, the bullets that you recover out of the water barrels. Mm-hmm. And 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 you recover all of the, the lead fragments and like tiny stuff like sand particles. Uh, and, and then like a copper bullet that pretty much stays stays together. And then you got this, you know, lead bullet that looks like something out of the bottom of an ashtray. You know, it, it's that because I, you know, you probably have a few skeptics, but I would probably say across the board, I don't know if people are skeptical that lead is not toxic. I I think that's almost like a, you know, a, f- a fairly well accepted thing that like lead is just not something that you should eat or breathe and you know, so people understand that. Maybe the question is, well, is that really harming, you know, wildlife? There's a hole and, you know, I recovered the bullet. But when when you see those ones recovered from water and, and see how much, how fine that particulate is, you know, you know, that's that's something that that is, you know, potentially staying out there in the gut pile and stuff. And that that's a big one for me. Anyways, I don't, I don't know how, how a lot of your customers see that. Or the it, it's so effective in person. And when we do these workshops, it's it's most effective because you get, and we'll have to describe it for, for your listeners, you get the crossed arms, scowling face at the beginning. And we do all the science <laughs> and the presentation in the beginning. And then by lunchtime, maybe they're a little more loosened up and the veins aren't popping out of the side of the head. And then we go to the range and we shoot and everybody gets comfortable because we all love to go shoot. And then we walk down to look into the barrel. And we had a gentleman in Wisconsin who was that quiet, really. I was worried about his health. I mean, he was really pumped up in the beginning of the, he was coming to attack the the people that, that he thought were making vulnerable our rights to hunt in the future. And after he saw that, he looked in the barrel and he says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And we were doing a film. We were doing a video. And it was a little uncomfortable. He said, I'm so sorry. I thought, and and I don't know if we, you can bleep this out later. He said, I thought this was all bullshit. And then he looked in the barrel. He said, I had no idea that was left in the carcass. This makes sense. So there is the problem and the solution. But it's only the solution in small scale. So how do you amplify and carry that messaging and go through that process on a landscape scale? 
And I'm sorry, it's just hard work. And in, the, in today's world where, you know, with the clickbait and the Internet, if you don't make that connection within the first 15 seconds, people are moved on. And so that is a challenge, not just for this issue, but that's a challenge for wildlife. So we have to be more innovative and we have to do things like podcasts, like Leland said, some people read it, some people hear it, but really you need to experience it. And so uh, in conservation, we don't do a very good job of, of uh, selling our product because we're taught in school that our peer-reviewed scientific publications speak for themselves. Well, in the scientific arena, that is absolutely true, but in the, the rest of the world, not so much. So working with industry, working with thought leaders, working through things like this where our reach can be greater is, is, is fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned the size of those particles and some of them are smaller than sand. I mean, like dust. And really, it's almost like smearing. And, and preparing for this, I looked through, back through a few of the papers just to, to refresh my memory about the, the literature that is on, on uh, you know, one of the things that you said you wanted to talk about, which was uh, shot in upland birds. And, and is there a concern? Well, new technologies, even since we last spoke, have revealed that what we knew to be the rates of fragmentation through standard X-ray technology has now been blown out of the water by synchrotron radiation. And that's a new imaging technology that can see things down to the microscopic scale. And where we had quantified in our early paper in 2006 that was published in Wildlife Society Bulletin, that we saw as many as 400 fragments in a gut pile. Well, now there's this little bitty section, and I, I forget, it's like two millimeters by four millimeters or something like that, in a ballistics gel, an X-ray of a ballistics gel with this synchrotron radiation uh, technology. And there's over 12,000 fragments in that little piece of that X-ray. So, so that, that blows wow. our, our what we thought as being somewhat informed, it blows that out of the water. But then it makes total sense. When, when they did a study up in the Northern Territories about no radiographic evidence of lead in and birds that were shot, and they looked at, they dissolved the tissues that had shot, that had holes through it. And we've all experienced this, right? We're like, oh man, you don't want to bite down on that piece of shot, even if it is lead. And definitely if it's, if it's steel, you don't want to bite down on it. But we're talking about lead here. You see that wound channel of that one pellet through the breast of, say, a pheasant or a duck. And you think, oh wow, well, the lead wasn't in there, right? Because we didn't bite down. You didn't find that pellet. But there is lead along that wound channel. And with this new technology, I'm really excited to see the next round of studies that show, well, what are we not seeing with standard X-ray technology? What will we see with new technology? And how will that inform our opinion of whether something is safe or not for, a scavenge, for scavenging wildlife or for us to consider in our own, our oh, own uh, um, uh, decisions we make? Sorry, I jumped way down a rabbit hole wow. there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no no that's 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 exciting yeah it comes down just to you know we use lead for pencils right for a reason because it left a mark behind you know we're using soft material same things happening right we're pushing that material against a denser material and it, you're gonna see that same action happening whether or not you can see an intact piece of metal there or not um, 
it makes sense. And then once you pencils went to graphite, right? Because right? no, I just picked up. Yeah, exactly. This pencil doesn't have any letter yeah. ink. It's an electronic pencil. Get out of here. Look at the <laughs> an electronic. Well, you know, well, here's a rabbit hole. You know what? You know what cheese me off is, is I went to the stationery store and I was like, I just need to buy some good old fashioned yellow wooden pencils. I just, I like those sharpen them. I can write with they're bloody plastic yeah. now. Oh, really? Jeez. They're painted yellow. They got a little brown inside. And I'm, I'm sharpening this thing, and I'm like, "What the hell?" And it's like, so oh, it's plastic." Yeah. So, anyways, that's going to end up in the ocean and inside the salmon and everything. That's that's a different podcast. But um, <laughs> no, not a lot yeah, of so renewable when, um, on there. <laughs> so, yeah, the the thing with the upland game birds and the shot like that. That's I want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, that's kind of was what I started out uh, when I got reached back to you guys there and say, let's kind of drill down and talk specifically, um, you know, about some of the other species. Uh, the big animals like a deer and an elk and a moose shot with a high-powered rifle, bigger bullets, um, the lead fragments, a big gut pile stays there, and the scavengers get on, on it. Birds of prey in particular, um, very susceptible um, to lead poisoning. There's a lot of science out there. That one probably uh, sits like okay as, as an argument for a lot of people or a rationale for their choices. Um, but then there's all these other species out there. Um, turkeys, grouse, um, doves, you know, all, all of these other, other species that we you know, you shotguns for, we use, you know, we're not over water. And I, I've been seeing a bit of the stuff this year uh, coming out of the UK. And there was one not too long after Christmas about pheasants that were in the, the markets there. So it's different than here, like hunters go out and shoot stuff. And then in Europe, they can go in and it's like, it's in a butcher shop, whether it's the wild pigs or the, the deer or the pheasants. And then it's talking about like the lead shot that was in the pheasants that are commercially available for, and I'm kind of like, what's the big deal? Like the worst is, is you might crack a tooth like I did, you know, on, on a steel shot from a duck, but it's like, generally you can just pick it out. Um, birds don't have big gut piles, um, you know, that we're leaving out there for fragments, you know, so, so I, these things started running through my mind. I was like, I want to talk to you guys about this. I've seen a couple campaigns out of the U.S. of states that look like they were trying to legislate and move forward lead bans. I think there was one, I don't know if it was New York or Vermont or, or somewhere around there. And hunter organizations were like rallying around opposing this. And I actually saw a lot of stuff going, you know, sort of discounting the impacts of lead uh, in the environment and on wildlife. So, um, I'm just going to open it up and, and let's dive a little bit more into um, the science, the, the biology of these birds. I hear people talking about like, uh, especially non-hunters, it's sort of like the, the grouse and, you know, they're pecking the gravel and they're ingesting lead shot. And what about upland game birds? What what and what where do we know are, are the risks? Is, is it as great? Take it wherever you want. You want to start, Leland? Or you want me well, to start? well, I would just say the first thing is that, you know, some of the very first pieces of data that we have around lead poisoning in wildlife is from upland 
birds from the 1870s. I think it's 1879. Was from pheasants in the UK and shooting fields and getting lead poisoning. So that's kind of the initiation oh, into wow. the entire topic is in that time period. And then we spent most of the 20th century wow, okay. looking at waterfowl, right? Because it became so obvious with those large die-offs happening. Um, I think we may have talked about some of this last time, but um, so we spent most of the 20th century looking at waterfowl and lead exposure from waterfowl hunting, the constriction of hunting in these small, smaller areas, the you know loading of lead into um, into that habitat, the exposure from you know dabbling and picking it up as grit and all that stuff, um, and then the late you know 20th century late eighties, early nineties in the U S and, you know, late mid nineties in Canada with the decisions around migratory bird treaty act to require the use of non-toxic shot for waterfowl addressed a lot of those concerns. Um, although not without its controversy, right? I mean, everyone knows that there was a lot of controversy around that switch early on. Um, since then, there has been some shift, but the amount of data available for upland bird um, shot exposure is pretty limited in comparison to what we have now for, say, raptor species. Um, there's just not the same depth okay. of literature that we have for predatory birds like bald and golden eagles and, and others. There's some out there, um, and there's some pretty interesting work that's happened out there looking at you know um, ingestion rates by looking picking through gizzards and doing things like that and we can go into individual studies as we need to but the reality right now is i think that it's um it is a little bit of a gap in the knowledge around um what exposure rates maybe are for those upland species and then how that translates into exposure for other non-target species as well right um, you know, we can make some supposition around, hey, if a predatory bird comes in and sees the wounded animal that you winged and didn't recover, which one's it going to target? Well, the one that flies slower and can't juke as fast and is a little easier to catch, who just kind of makes logical sense. But getting the data around right. all of that is really challenging, right? Like, how are you going to track what happens to that individual bird rate? rates of predation on those birds compared to other birds is really just kind of impossible to do. Um, so there's some, just some logistical challenges. And I would imagine, I would imagine like anything in science, you know, the uh, people love to study grizzly bears and wolves sure. uh, when it comes to the birds. We love to study the big raptors and owls and kind of the, the um, charismatic ones. And we've seen some big impacts there. We probably don't have people picking up, you know, uh, grouse and taking them into a rehab center like they would a ball, you know, a bald eagle or something like that. And then x-raying and find, finding plus, it. Plus they're just or, harder or to if find, they're right? X-raying. I mean, a grouse is going to be a lot harder to find than a bald yeah, eagle. Just, so, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And then I guess if they are like sort of building on what you said, if they are predatory birds that are coming into a facility and they, they die and they x-ray them and have lead fragments in it N knowing whether that came from a gut pile or from like you said consuming you know some grouse or some doves or something that's just not in our state of knowledge right now i mean you'd have to have the 
the material in the digestive tract to look at, right? If you see the fragments or you see the shot, those are visually distinctive or distinctive in a necropsy uh, yep. when you process an animal um, to see what killed it. But yeah, it's it just is much more challenging. Um, and I don't think you I don't think maybe you see the same temporal or time um, associations with exposures because there's so much overlap there as well, right? When you start talking about these predatory, you know, the non-target species, right. you've got a lot of overlap with um, the big game or the, you know, like coyote hunting seasons and things like that at the same time. So it's not as simple as just, hey, it's changed this time of year. It's just, you know, it seems to be happening. These exposures seem to be occurring mostly in the fall and through the winter when those food sources are available. Distinguishing which one of those at any given time may be pretty challenging. Right. Yeah, there's a growing now, body of, of, of science ahead. out there. But um, I mean, I think I think for most listeners who are just hearing about this, there are two major pathways. One, you guys just covered. When you shoot an animal that's wounded and it gets away, whether it dies later or it's moribund and it's not as healthy and flying as well and it gets picked off by a predator or it finally dies and it's picked up by a scavenger. The other one is with the birds that are that are gravelers. They they within their 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 gizzard, they're picking up small bits of stones that help to break down the stuff that they eat, largely seeds. So Leland mentioned the morning dove. So there's two different pathways of entry in there. And the question is, it always comes down to whether when you're talking about policy, most people talk about policy with respect to, is there a population effect? Because we manage wildlife traditionally because of a population effect. Um, but what, what, we, what we find, and I won't say what we argue, but what we point out, point out is we also manage our, ourselves in hunting and angling with ethics as well. And so the important thing is to know the pathways where lead can get into the food chain. So those two ways that lead can get into the food chain, animals can eat it, this is well documented in dove, and animals that are shot, and then that shot can be consumed by a predator or a scavenger later on. So I think that the thing we like to point out is that as, the, as a hunter or an angler, this is your choice and your opportunity. We're not arguing about bans or no bans, we're saying, hey, inform yourself take this information into consideration when you make your decisions just like and i'm going to steal brown's thunder because he hasn't said it yet and he, he was the first one that i heard say this that you know know your target and beyond is one of the basic premises of all of our hunting education right and now we're adding a new dimension to that know and be responsible for your shot so when you harvest an animal whose remains are left in the field and those remains might have particles of lead, either from fragments of a center fire or rim fire bullet or from pellets. We're still in charge of that. We still have the opportunity to manage the implications. And so there's a new dimension of when you leave remains out in the field, like if you miss a dove or and you don't hit it full pattern and now it's going to be consumed by a predator or a scavenger. We, that's our we put that into the food chain. And I think when you put it in that context, it really means something to the individual hunter. Now, now the individual hunter can take that information and, and obviously we don't want to think the worst, right? We don't want to think that our practices in hunting and angling as have been, have been occurring for generations before us are having any deleterious effects out there. 
whether it be population affecting or not. We don't want to think that. It's just like water quality. I'm an angler, an avid and rabid angler. I don't want to think that the, the smallmouth that I caught the other day in the Snake River, I don't even want to think about the toxicology of the water of this section of the river that I fish. I want to catch the, find the fish, catch the fish, take it home and eat it. And my wife says to me, what about the toxicology? Is it safe to eat? I don't want to think about that. And I think that's what we're dealing with, you know, with the bird. I don't want to think about is there lead in the meat that I'm eating or the, the lead that I'm putting into the rest of the food chain. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate truth that we have to face. And it doesn't matter whether it's affecting populations or not. The individual hunter has that opportunity to make those decisions. And so this information will help inform that decision-making process. And what Leland and I and everybody else who's working on this issue have found, when you share this information in a non-confrontational way, in a not talking down to people way, hunters and anglers make good decisions for wildlife. And that's what we're seeing in these voluntary incentive-based programs. So I know I went off on another tangent there, but, but, but that, no, no, that's the context from which we can think about how we use this information to make personal decisions. You know, I, I was in, in DC last week talking to policymakers and it, and it just really drove home to me that policymakers are doing their damnedest to make good decisions on behalf of all of us and we've elected them to do so. But we're, we're, we're forgetting that we as individual hunters and anglers are responsible for so much. And we've seen it, Leland and I have seen it. You know, you do a program for three years, next thing you know, you get 80% voluntary participation. That didn't happen with changing policy. That happened with informing people and changing minds. And we in conservation, that's why there's so many sports groups out there that are so effective in doing great things for conservation. It's not the government's responsibility alone. We can do these things. And that's where I think the voluntary programs and considering, hey, you know what? I'm going to try non-lead this year or I'm going to try tungsten. You know, and it's funny when you hear about tungsten these days, what do most people say? Oh, my God, you can dump a turkey at 70 yards. Well, maybe that's a stretch, but over 50 yards with a 410. <laughs> Hunters respond to that like, where can I buy it? Well, it's three times as expensive. Oh, that's okay. It's turkey hunting. I'm going to go buy it. So look at the difference. Look at the difference. Yeah, right? Look at the difference in, in how that impacts people and that information. So I, I think we have to really define what we're talking about. Are we talking about individual hunters and anglers' opportunities to do great things for wildlife? Or are we talking about policy? Once you frame that in the conversation – then you can really have a more meaningful conversation. No, for sure. And and I, I like the dichotomy between like ethics and population effects, because I think where that would drive home to listeners and myself is when we have something go wrong hunting and we wound and lose oh. an animal, we don't just sort of go, Oh, well, that's not going to affect the population. Like, I mean, there's lots of mallards and, you know, or whatever. It's like, man, whitetails, like I've seen 40 already today. Like, no, it's, it's a, it's a big thing, right? Like you go through a process to deal with, with that. And so what you were saying about, you know, maybe, uh, like a grouse or a dove, um, that you wound and has a lead pellet in it that gets ingested, like that's probably not, maybe, 
uh, unless you correct me long, that's not a population level effect, but it's a it's a way that you personally have introduced lead into uh, the ecosystem, which could end up causing uh, the the horrible death of an owl or or a bird of prey, which would be no different if you were like. Um, oh, there comes a dove. Boom. Holy shit. That was a, uh, a kestrel. Whoops. Oh my God. I wounded a kestrel, right? Like you would feel sick about that. So you may have actually done that inadvertently. And like you said, you don't know. So we don't want to want to think about that. So these choices that you're talking about and, and introducing lead into the environment, I, I do very much see that as a, as a ethic thing and a, and an animal by animal. Uh, thing which each individual person has some control over and that that was that was a powerful way to frame that you know one of the one of the things i hear a lot from from people who are arguing against that is oh well lead's you know from the earth we're just returning it to the earth right it's a bit of a flip way of saying well i couldn't you know i'm not doing anything wrong leave me alone <laughs> so yeah <is> uranium right. <laughs> but if you look at the actual information out there about 90 percent or i think it's closer to 97 percent i have to look at the at the figures again but it's over 90 percent of available lead is from people mining it smelting it and doing something with it lead as a general rule is bound up in ore mm-hmm. and other mm-hmm. places it's not there in a pile of food it's not there just getting eaten by stuff randomly um, it's there because we have made the conscious decision to make something out of it and then use it, which again, like Chris was saying before, makes it our responsibility to manage, right? And this has nothing to do with population. It's just yeah. we are introducing a new aspect into the environment that we are now responsible for. And if we can find ways to address this and or have other options that don't introduce any negative any of these negative consequences then great again that makes hunting stronger into the future that makes stewardship and conservation stronger into the future as additional challenges come up like increased disease outbreaks or um, you know wildfire whatever else right if we can reduce the whatever pressure we're putting on these various populations of animals we're going to hopefully leave them a little bit more robust, a little more able to survive these variations. And that's going to be just good stewardship in the long run, whether or not it's population level or not. It's just minimizing impacts where we can. And this is one where we can. We have a choice. Every hunter has this choice. This is not something you need to be a big wig. You don't have to go down to the Capitol and, and lobby for anything. You just need to go to the store, think about what you're choosing, and buy some stuff and test it in your firearm, which you're probably doing already, right? Because there's so much new stuff yeah. coming out all the time. So why not try some non-lead while you're doing it? Now, now you were both kind of mentioning a little bit, just sort of back to the upland game bird, that is there a, a bit of science now around what they're finding in crops maybe break that down a little bit because this one's really interesting for me like going back to the uk um conversation that you mentioned earlier leland at the start with um with pheasants back in the 1800s like they hunt very differently over there they've got those shooting areas and those stone walls and it's like been they've been shooting in the same place for like 
hundreds and hundreds of years and I can understand they're almost like um, like shooting ranges like in the wild I can imagine the amount of of lead shot that's out there I think about myself traveling on some old roads and you know and in the woods here and there and a shot here and there at you know at a grouse is is it you know the same thing is that lead shot that's out there that's missed is that being picked up by birds I've even gone as far as like I've looked at the at the um, the the grit in some grouse that I have shot and this was really fascinating to me but it's like it doesn't look like they're random because all of the little fragments are like the same size they're not round the ones I found were actually like peanut shaped they're kind of oblong and they look like they're selecting out of all the rocks that are available on the road they're selecting like the hardest rock that's there um, you know quartzite and and like some of the really really hard stuff which makes sense is you know they they know and I'm like I don't think they're just they're dumb birds that are just gonna see a little round pellet and pick it up they're gonna go like nope wrong size wrong color wrong shape and I but I don't know I just uh, what what do you guys have what have you learned about upland game birds and so crops? well what i've learned personally i i can't attest to but in reviewing the literature and again just looking at today i was dumbfounded to find that in one of the papers i read 59 terrestrial bird species have been documented as having lead in their systems now that's not to say that yeah 59 oh, and i'm thinking i was thinking dove quail chucker Okay, three, four species of quail, maybe, but fifty-nine terrestrial bird species have been documented as, as suffering from some type of, uh, or not suffering, have been documented of having lead that's been inserted into their food chain. Okay, I mean that that's not what they, the paper said, but but obviously yeah. this lead that we're talking about is stuff that we're putting in there. Um, you you hit on it earlier, Mark, with with the doves. You know, there's approximately a hundred million shots fired at morning doves. Annually, <laughs> annually. So traditional fields. Now I can speak from personal experience because dove hunting, where I grew up in the southern San Joaquin Valley, uh, in outside of Bakersfield, was like deer season in in Utah and Colorado. Right? I mean, you expected that most kids were going to not make it to school that day of opening day fell in that week. You still have to make it to football practice, but you, you, you could go to that after you shot doves in the morning. <laughs> and, and those traditional fields, they've replicated by sampling those traditional fields. And this is a, a study out of, uh, I think it was Texas, um, where they've replicated the densities of lead they found in those traditionally hunted fields. So they have a, um, what, what do you call it? They have a, I almost said stocking rate. I think I was reading about grazing earlier today. Um, but you, you assess how many pieces of shot you find in a traditionally hunted field. They took those data and recreated it in a study where they had a captive population of doves to actually see with this density of lead on the landscape, how much of it is consumed by the doves for graveling because they're collecting the grit that they use to break down the seeds in their gizzard. And then what was the outcome? Holy crap. All of the doves either died or had to be euthanized because they were, they were so lead poisoned. Now this study came out in 2014. 
Yeah, 2014. Oh and man, you talk about a, uh, a a storm, and it wasn't a hailstorm. It was the other type of storm that happened in the politics around this. Um, <laughs> it impacted people greatly. And I was so proud of one of the scientists who was involved in that study. And he said, look, guys, and of course, you can't say he's just, just guys anymore, right? We're, we're talking about the times and how things are changing. But look, folks, if we didn't have lead poisoning as a potential contributing factor to mortality in doves, we could potentially double the bag limit and the population would still be sustainable. That's how many doves were anticipated to be lost. And again, I'm talking about modeling here. And the moment you talk about modeling, People get get worried about it. But, you know, modeling is a way of, of assessing potential. So even if that's just the outside potential that we could double our bag limits. Well, now we're talking to the people I grew up around. Anything you would talk about doubling limits, available limits per day, people are going to consider it. And then the other thing I found in re reviewing the terrestrial bird species uh, impact, um, it was the uh, decreased... Um, uh, decreased productivity for these birds that had one piece of shot in their gut. And I, I think it was a grouse species they were studying, and it decreased their pr productivity. The way it decreased their productivity is in the males, their testes shrunk. And I told my wife today, I was laughing. I was like, this is it. This is the message. We're <laughs> affecting the size of testes and birds. And I, I know it's, we shouldn't have these podcasts late in the evening because it's been a long day. But I saw that and I thought, that's going to resonate with, with my fellow. Well, that's that's what that's what happens if you happen to ingest some lead from yes. your rough grouse <laughs> yeah. and you're in your twenties. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious here, and I'm, make, I'm, I'm making light of it. But but these are the conversations that I think we could be having about. Holy smokes, a hundred million shots fired at morning does annually, and then so I did the calculations wow. like well. I remember back as a kid, um, you know, there were those folks who shot seven eighths of an ounce. And then there were those folks who shot that one ounce shot and an ounce times one. Holy moly. That's something for those traditionally hunted fields. Now, is it the same for, for other upland birds when you're chasing quail out across the landscape and you're walking, following the dog? The densities of lead are going to be less, but it drives home the point. Um, and, and it's a point for consideration. But that has a lot of yapping again. So. Wow, that is um, that is unbelievable, unbelievable that in doves uh, and huh. doves hit that same point kind of as waterfowl, right? Where you end up with a lot of shooting happen over restricted areas often, and you know you get those densities. But even with those other upland birds, I mean, when you look at there's a a good study I found out of Ontario, where they looked at um, gizzard r rates of ingestion by looking at gizzards and chuckers and pheasants, and 34% yeah. of the gizzards they looked at had lead shot in them. And this was a, you know, this is an island, a privately owned island wow. in southern Ontario. They don't say what island it is, but it's a, it's a hunting reserve. It's an area, you know, they do shooting trap shooting and things like that. So there's probably a high de higher density of lead out there. But 8% of the chuckers there had lead in there too. But then when you looked at rates of actual lead exposure, when they looked at liver, you saw similar results where like 5% of chucker 
and 24% of pheasant had high levels of lead in their livers, which means that they're consuming it and then absorbing it into the system. It's not just that they're eating it and it's sitting there. It's actually being absorbed and processed, um, which changes things as well, right? Because now you're talking about it being, you know, a higher lead load within that bird, whether or not you get all that shot out of there. So whether something else comes and feeds on that or, or that bird has issues with reproduction or uh, reaction time or all these sublethal impacts of lead, which are many, um, all, all are now on the table. And it's really hard to quantify what all that means too, right? Because we don't have a, like, it's really hard to test all that in wild species. Yeah. We can do these captive studies, but trying to figure out exactly what that means in a wild population gets real challenging. Yeah, I, I saw that wow. as well, Leland, today when I was reviewing some of these papers. The flight distances and foraging range is decreased for those birds that had as little as one pellet in their gut. I mean, these are peer-reviewed scientific studies. They're saying that the birds forage less widely if they had one shot in their gut. They're not Maybe they're not feeling as well, whatever, but these things are not quantified, right? We're talking about what hits the news is when animals die from something. But what if you're decreasing their fitness or their right. health? Mm. You, you can't say fitness in the scientific community because it means a different thing. But people, most people think of fitness as what you go to, you know, the club to work on. Um, but but still, um, if if you're talking about a bird's ability to forage more widely being decreased because it ingested one piece of shot, that hit me, and I thought, man, I I don't want to decrease their fitness. They have a hard enough time making a living. You know, we, we talk about raptors all the time as the predators that I'm always encouraging people to look at raptors as a quintessential predator because I work for a raptor conservation group. Um, but they're hunting for a living, not for fun, for recreation or for sustenance uh, in whole. Not, hardly anybody does that anymore. But but even for those, let, let's be let's be fair to those communities who do provide most of their sustenance for their protein and animals that they hunt. That's really where you need to be having these conversations, not for us recreational. You know, I hunt upland birds two or three times a year if I'm lucky. Um, I'd do it more if I uh, could get away with it. But anyway, the, the point being is, is um, there, there are different ways of looking at impacts, not just mortality. And more and more studies are looking into those intricacies. And in raptors, we have the studies, and Leland can recount this better than I can, but with golden eagles and how, how more, um, I don't know, what would you call it, how, how more healthy they are because they fly higher and they fly bigger, and that allows them to cover more ground. And anybody knows that the more fit you are as a hunter out there on the landscape in the fall, and the more fit you are, the better hunter you are. And so we might be doing more damage than is actually being talked about in decreasing the fitness of those animals and the health of those animals that are out there making a living in the wild. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, a few weeks ago, Curtis and I were in southern Alberta with um, Dr. Doug Manzer from the Alberta Conservation Association looking at some upland game bird habitat enhancement work that was being done on an active um, uh, farming operation in uh, south-central Alberta. And uh, pheasants, uh, waterfowl, and grace partridge were like the, the, 
the target species and and just learning about gray's partridge you know and these flight distances and you know they were talking you know doug was talking about like you know this is the type of habitat that the um the hen would uh, nest in and then these hedgerows are like their hiding cover and if they're out there feeding in the field they got to get back into those like really quickly because a bird of prey can't get them and then this is the brood habitat over here which is a little bit different and then he talks about um, like the brood habitat is where there's going to be more insects because the broods uh, the, the chicks needed protein to get bigger and then there the, he talked about like their ability uh, over time in the springtime and their flight distances to get out and feed more and grow bigger and faster. And now I, right away I'm thinking about that. Oh, so just imagine that one bird whose ability to travel out um, farther and farther as it gets older um, to feed properly, maybe, you know, two out of six chicks, that, that affects them. Now all of a sudden you're talking about like, 20% of a brood population, you know, as an explanation or, or the ability of those grazed partridge to get like bust, a, they see a, a hawk and bust and get back into that hedgerow and the one or two maybe that are a little bit slower that get picked off and, and those were, those are really struck home to me because we just, we were seeing this very thing in the field a couple of weeks ago and talking about distances and flights and predation and now you're talking about some scientists saying that like one lead shot can affect you know their speed to move and their distances to fly and i was able to connect the dots there with what we learned about the gray partridge that, so that brings up wow. another interesting point mark in that you know the habitat's not homogeneous right it's not all the same so when we're out there hunting we may be covering large distances but the places where we end up actually shooting at upland birds probably tends to be much more constrained, right? Because they are in the habitat that they need mm -hmm. to be in. And so it's not just, they're not just out across this big landscape that we're going all across. They're in these pockets of the landscape where we end up shooting more. So I don't know if I'd have to go back through the literature, but I don't think anyone's done any work looking at shot densities around um, like covey sites or something like that. You know, I'm thinking about hunting chucker over in Eastern Oregon, right? As we just, we tend to catch them kind of in these similar spots, right? They're just kind of always right in that same spot. And you go back every year, you're like, hey, I know there's some chucker up here. They're hard to find, but I know this spot where they hang out. And I don't think anyone's gone in and done like, hey, is it, what's density of shot in this area? Same, you know, with quail, same thing, right? It's just, it's a hard thing to quantify. Um, but it's likely that, that we are loading mm -hmm. certain areas more than other parts of the landscape. Do we have all the data behind that? No. That makes sense. Yeah, the one that's coming to mind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's how science starts, right? Is like, you know, we, we take something that we see, it's an observable we develop a question around that and then, you know, a, a study design and a hypothesis and, and we test it. Because the one that's coming to my mind is, you know, in in the West here in Canada, like especially BC, upland game bird hunting is not for the most part like the thing. It's big game hunting. 
and people will pick up grouse uh, when they're out as a byproduct of seeing grouse on the logging road when they're going during elk hunting. So now what you just said, Leland, about most of the grouse hunting shots are probably in our part of the world on logging roads, down a logging road, you know, for the most part, right? Part the truck, the grouse is out in front, you get to the side, you're shooting down, you know, probably down the road more, more times than not. So, and certain stretches of road have more grouse on it. They're going to get more picked off over the time of the year because of the habitat that's on each side of the road, right? It could be a riparian area or, or you know, lots of berries or something. Now, I doubt anybody's ever gone out and done random sampling on logging roads to see what, what is on there for, for lead shot because it, if it is there, and I'm sure it is, then it becomes potentially, like you said, Chris, that's an ingestion route for potentially 59 other species. Yeah. Right? And I think the, the, the thing we all fall victim to is, and like I said earlier about my, my uh, not wanting to consider water quality when it comes to the fish I consume, is uh, we want to think that, well, it's just, you know, I only go twice a year. It's not a big deal. Well, look at those forest roads. Look at those 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 roads and say, it's just one piece of trash. How many does it take before there's a lot of trash? How many shots does it take before there's more lead that could be consumed by those birds graveling? And again, we're not talking about something that's affecting populations. We're talking about us being responsible stewards of the landscape and teaching that to the next generations to leave it better than we found it. Because I am proud to say that where I grew up, there's not as much trash on the roadside because people have changed their behavior. So we are capable of it. We just have to be informed and being informed and and aligning philosophically with what a good quote unquote thing to do is, is very different than doing it, right? We have to contemplate it and then we have to practice it. And that's where I think hunter ed and taking kids hunting and fishing, taking people that aren't hunters and anglers fishing and hunting. Um, this is our opportunity to, to see hunting and conservation through to the future. And I get as excited about that as I do geeking out about the science. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, yeah, the, you know, the more and more I think about it now, it's like, you know, just if, if all my shotgun shot is steel, because uh, they mostly do waterfowl hunting. I remember last year I came back and I was going, going to go check out an area to see if there was some geese or something in the fields. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, there's a dove up on the tree sitting on that branch. And then um, all of a sudden I'm, I'm like, because I haven't really dove hunted here a lot. I'm going to try it this fall. I got some decoys and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I, I've got the 16 gauge in the truck. And I was using the 12 gauge and like number twos for duck hunting. And I'm like, that's a little much for this dove. I got the 16 gauge. And then I'm like, but it's a migratory bird. Am I allowed to use lead shot or steel shot and I'm on the side of the road like the idiot the bird sitting back there in a tree and I'm flipping through the oh no actually I am and I, I did have some and and uh, ne never did get it but it's like just if I got seven and a half shot steel for uh, teal and I've also got it for doves and grouse or whatever it's not a big deal 
I don't know what it's like where you guys live, but in our federal regulations, if you're waterfowl hunting and you've actually got lead ammunition with you, you can be charged. You don't have to be shooting it or caught shooting it if it's in your possession while you're waterfowl hunting. It's probably a fairly standard one. And I'm like, why just just eliminate that's that's a risk to us right yeah. and compliance and then you so, get into the barriers huh. um that, that that leland can talk about um you know barriers to finding ammo the cost issue those are other barriers that we try to help overcome yeah yeah i that's that's one of the ones that i've seen been put up a couple of times this year with some bills that came out in the states was hunter groups sort of saying like it's a barrier to entry you know the cost of the ammunition whatnot and i don't know man i maybe you can speak to this i did some research the other day and it's like here in canada ammunition's more but it's between 10 and 20 dollars a box more and i just I bought my tags for this fall and it's like a moose tag is 25 bucks and an elk tag is 25 bucks. And it's like, that's not, not a lot. I'm just like, I I don't have a moose draw, but I I have an opportunity in the archery season for a spike moose. And I'm like, I'm just going to buy a moose tag. What the heck? You know, you never elk hunting. You might see a little spike bull. It's like, well, that was 25 bucks. Like, what's the big deal it's not a lot for, of money. For how really, many but pounds of meat at the end of that? If you're lucky. How are you finding that that argument about cost? Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because we've seen the cost. Well, the cost of ammunition as a whole in the last three or four years has gone through the roof, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what you're using. It's all it's all super expensive. No, I mean, yeah. I saw core locks for sale a year or two ago for fifty dollars a box for thirty out six. It was just like. I used to be, you know, the one everyone would hold up and be like, oh, I can buy a box for $17 or whatever, $20 for a box of, of lead. It's like, well, not anymore. You can't. Um, and I was in the store the other couple weeks ago at this point, maybe a month ago, and saw well, I was buying ammo for a 6.5 Creedmoor we were going to do some testing with. And all of the hunting ammo, all of the, you know, decent quality hunting ammo, everything that everyone's looking for was on the shelf. Um, and it was all $50 or more, except for the barns, the non-lit barns, which was $48.99. It was the cheapest hunting ammo on the shelf. There was like full metal jacket stuff on the shelf for cheaper, but we were looking at hunting ammo. Um, so the cost has really shifted a lot for rifle ammunition. I think when you start looking at shotgun ammunition, you're still running into some issues with material, especially when you look at bismuth and tungsten. Chris talked about this earlier, right? Tungsten is expensive. You're going to pay for it. You also get really good performance yeah. out of the deal. So um, at a certain point, there may be a balance where it's, hey, I get something that's more effective. I take fewer shots because it dumps things better than lead ever did um but i pay more for it does that end up evening out in the end i don't know depends how good a shot you are um steel tends to be pretty similar to lead these days it seems like and it's gotten so good we did a test a couple years ago we did some pattern testing and shot some ballistic gels with the different waterfowl loads just to establish some baseline and the steel stuff at 30 yards did as good as any of the lead that we tested um and even as good as like the heavy shot and some of the other interesting stuff that we tested it was pretty impressive um you know we sized up a little bit in shot size 
to make up for the density difference. Um, but we still had really good patterns and we still were getting four to six inches of penetration at 25 or 30 yards. So if you're waiting for birds to come in close, or you're able to sneak in for that close shot or jump them when they're fairly close, you're, you'll be all right. And then you look at things like bismuth now, which has really come a long way, which hits the middle ground of cost and performance. And you know, I know a lot of folks these days who have shifted into the copper-plated bismuth just because it works so dang well um, in the upland fields, in the upland woods. So, I don't know, kind of went all over the place yeah. there and went pretty high level. Yeah, you know, the, the most expensive one, the most expensive one that I've run into in the last couple of years oh, is yeah. the TSS, the tungsten yeah. in my turkey shells. Uh, a box of five of like the Heavy X. Uh, up here, they were running about like 55 bucks a box. So I'm about 10 and a half bucks a shot, a shot so shell, I don't, right? I don't so, know if you can get them. I, uh, so but the, what I've done the, in the last couple of years is there's a company called Apex that loads TSS for a waterfowl load. So instead of two ounces a shot, it's an ounce a shot. It was still putting 90 pellets in a 12 inch circle at 50 yards and was still putting Good God. It was out of a 12 gauge and it was still putting six inches of penetration on a gel block at 50 yards. Why do I need two ounces a shot to punish my shoulder if I've got that performance out of one ounce a shot? And it's half the price because it's half the material. So I was like, well, I'll just buy wow. that and use that and with my turkey load. No kidding. No problem, right? I mean, I'll just, I'll take it. Um, with TSS, I think you don't necessarily need to go to those big, heavy um, shot loads because you've got the smaller shot size and the pattern density, and because it's got that density, it's still getting, and the smaller shot size helps with that penetration, right? Because you have less resistance, so you can do, you know, get that good penetration at, at whatever ranges you're looking at. So I'm not, yeah, I don't even... I'm on the lookout mm. now when, when they got that water spiral stuff for sale. And it's like, well, I'll buy a box of that and I'll get 10 in a box mm. for the same price or something. Oh, it's that's... like, well, sweet, I'll have those. <laughs> yeah. That's five. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a huge tip because I'm going to start watching now for next spring for that. <laughs> yeah. I wrote it down. I just, here. I just, bl the I just Apex blew my T whole system TSS. out of the water yeah. now. Everyone's going to be like, well, what's that company again? They're never going to have anything in stock. Because <laughs> uh, I'll tell you why this is a bit of a sore, sore point. So they're, I did the math. I'm like 10 and a half bucks a shell, right? Like, holy. And it's like, well, uh, I switched shotguns for turkey season this year i'm like i gotta go out and pattern mm -hmm. this thing see how it reacts out of this so i drove out and you know set up a couple of distances boom boom and i'm like ah, that's pretty good um you know it'll kill a turkey my my ethical range is about 30 yards in a turkey i'm not like um uh, trying trying to do those long distances 30 yards that's it for me and um and then i came home and I was going, geez, I, I really hope I had the full <laughs> yeah. choke in there from waterfall <laughs> hunting last year. But I'm just, ah, oh, there's, so I went and I pulled it out and I'm like, oh, for F's sake, 
I switched over and I was running the modified in the later part of mallard season. So I'm trying to pattern this shotgun for turkey hunting with the modified choke. And I'm going, well, that's not bad. It'll kill a turkey. And I'm like, ah, oh, that was 30 bucks for three shots. <laughs> so back out, I put, changed the chokes. I went back out there and I'm like, tripled the density yeah. of pellets that was going into this turkey's head. And I'm like, I shot a turkey this spring with one shot, but it was like there was like six six other ones yeah. backing that up. So uh, that was a little expensive this spring between patterning and shooting well, a turkey. Well, the but, added uh, benefit well, of your podcast, you may just save somebody some money. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. If you're turkey hunting in the springtime and it was the same gun you used for, maybe you cleaned it, but check that yeah, choke I, folks, I switched so. out and bought an extended guys is there is there anything else tur- that turkey choke because that way i can tell if i've got the turkey choke in real easy it's like no it's sticking that out you can barrel. always it's tell so my choke, other i know for sure <laughs> yeah yeah then you know i uh like i said i switched yeah. switch shotguns and i don't have an extended choke on the other one so it got me once Guys, is there anything else that you wanted to like touch on this upland game bird kind of topic that we didn't we didn't get to? There were some pretty eye-opening things for me. I, I mean, I just there's a lot of information out there. There's more than we covered, even though it's kind of got a little bit less depth than some of the raptor stuff. There's some isotope studies out of Quebec that are pretty cool, looking at soil lead and comparing that to bone lead, and there's variation when there's high levels in woodcock. Um, from the soil. So it's a different type of lead than what's generally available mm-hmm. in the environment. So there's lots of stuff out there that the foundation exists. We know it's happening. Um, we know that as hunters, we have the options, we have the ability, we've got the skill to solve it. Um, and it's really important, I think, for for us as a community to continue to be the ones leading this conversation and being proactive about it so that we're not sitting on our heels waiting yeah. for other people to make the decision for us, but we're the ones taking charge, solving the problems, figuring out what works, figure out what doesn't work, uh, and then go back to the manufacturers and tell them so that you know they can continue to improve those products and have them available for us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I second that. Yeah, let, let's not let other people who don't know hunting and angling, uh, make the decisions for us. Let, let's inform and empower ourselves and lead the way. And again, this comes back from my, my recent week on, on uh, Capitol Hill. Um, you know, uh, that, that type of policy stuff is, is great because it does in a way represent us, but we're stronger than, than any one group or agency or organization or government body can um, can represent us. We, we have choices we can make without having to be told what to do. And uh, we need to talk about it. You know, we've always heard, I've heard since I was in wildlife management classes some 30 years ago, that uh, hunters and anglers aren't well represented. I think we're better represented than we ever were. So let's let's unite to, uh, to, to take care of some of this business and not rely on other groups or leave it to them to tell us what to do. Let's let's educate ourselves, make make decisions, mm-hmm. and let's talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, and thank you, Mark, for having us on, if we don't talk about it, the rest of the non-hunting and angling world thinks we don't care, and that's definitely not the case. No, no, that's a really good point, and 
Yeah, I really value you guys coming back on and having this conversation that sort of really revolved around the Upland game birds and, and just because in in my experience and, and even the things that I've advocated to our listeners and maybe what we see out there, we're always thinking of non-lead being the high-powered rifles, uh, the deer, the elk, and eagles. Like that, that's kind of like that's the place that this topic always seems to come around to. Uh, in the fishing world, a uh, little, little bit different, you know, there. But in the in this genre of hunting and upland game birds, turkeys, chuck are, you, you mentioned like woodcock, there's snipe, there's all the species of grouse. Uh, th- there's, there's a tremendous amount of shooting 100 million shots a year at doves um wow like that is that in itself i would almost hazard a guess would be more tonnage of lead on the landscape than from rifle hunting in north america from doves if you took 100 million shots Mm -hmm. and put it in a dump truck like i mean that's i don't know maybe maybe my math is off i think uh, i think you're right (laughs) but also in the fact that it's going out in fragments to start out with and so the probability of going into the food chain ingestion you know that that um maybe shotguns actually present a greater risk uh i i don't know but um it, it was gr- it was a great discussion to put those wildlife species on the table and and uh you guys brought some really earth shattering <laughs> information to the table on on it uh honestly i didn't expect that to be where we're at. I was kind of being like, you know, it's not as probably as big a concern with upland game birds as it is with, you know, the deer gut pile and, and stuff. But it was like, I'm completely looking at yeah, it. Yeah, I think the now. thing for... Pleasure. Oh, sorry. I think the thing for us is if we're going to, if we're going to be shooting and introducing lead out into the landscape, um, if we're creating those food sources, if we're introducing it you know for wildlife to feed on we should be thinking about what other options we've got and where non-lead can fit in there and um and solve you know create those same uh, same results that we're looking for which is the animals we're shooting at to be on the ground but remove those negative potentials um because it's like like we've said multiple times in here that's what's going to make tradition of hunting and stewardship and conservation stronger into the future. And I got to, yeah, thanks again for having us here, Mike, Mark. It's always a, a great pleasure Absolutely. to talk with you. And um, hopefully, you know, some folks listening got a little something useful out of it that they can, you know, bring into their next season. No, I did. Yeah, absolutely. And and sorry yeah. for the Lots uh, of great Le- Leland just spawned another thing I thought about because I had a, a fellow say, well, you guys are anti-lead. And I was like, no. I mean, there have been lead bullets and projectiles for rifle hunting that didn't fragment. So it's not anti-lead, but different ways that we use old elements and technologies, it's a possible. So I don't want people to get the wrong feeling that we're against lead. Um, if, if lead can be made in such a way that it's not uh, introducing led into the environment, into the food chains that, that animals are ingesting, there have been instances, you know, there, was, there were bullets from Winchester years ago that rarely fragmented, 
So it's a lead-based bullet, but it didn't fragment. So it was pretty safe. So there are ways to use these products in, in better ways too. So we're not we're not anti-lead. We say non-lead because we want to get lead out of the food chain when it can be absorbed by the systems of these critters that are eating it. So um, that that would yeah. Sorry to keep adding on there, but but yeah, I'll. No, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. So no, it's a. Uh, yeah, education and mindsets and all those things are overlapping on top of this topic. And I think just addressing everything and laying it out there, I think, is a great way to do it. Guys, thanks so much for coming on on the show again. Um, I am. I'd like to chat offline now that COVID is kind of done. It would be really cool to plan a shooting range event for you guys to get up north of the border somewhere and partner up on something and and uh, f figure out how how we can do that. Um, we don't have to sort it out here, but um, I think that would be be cool to to have happen and maybe even like a train the trainer program uh, to get some delivery agents up here or whatever um, promoting and and doing these hands-on shooting range workshops with folks uh, like you guys are doing so I think that's a great topic I'd love to to follow through with you afterwards let's if do you're it interested. yeah I'm, I'm in we just gotta find the cool man place. right on be there yeah. yeah you bet you bet maybe maybe coincide with some kind of like a I mean I like I like the way your mind works <laughs> well right <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. The One of my buddies that I started, I'm actually working with a, an old buddy of mine at a new job that I just started. And we've been commuting back and forth. And he's got a Toyota from Alpine Toyota. And the first one he had said it had a factory thing and the engine totally just went on him. So Alpine, being the great customer service they have, I was chatting with him the other day, and he said it was uh, very easy. He got a new truck very quickly, very fast, and he was pretty pretty pumped about it. So there's just a word of mouth, secondhand story, first secondhand story about the customer service from Alpine. So we're always grateful. Alpine Toyota has been supporting us for two years now. Been a been a quick minute that they've been helping us out on the show. So show them some support. Even just write them an email, give them a phone call, bring some coffees down, and just say, hey, thanks for supporting the boys over at Hunter Conservationist. Um, also, you've heard us talk about it before. If you're a new listener, you haven't. If you're an old listener, you've heard it a lot. Um, the Hunter Conservationist is on Patreon at the Hunter Conservation, Patreon slash thehunterconservationist.com. We have some extra bonus content on there. Another podcast, the Hunter's Underground podcast, where we talk about all sorts of things and issues and I wouldn't say rant and rave, but shoot the shit and BS a bunch. So it's a really cool podcast. You guys should check it out. And thanks to the folks that are already Patreon subscribers. Cool. Thank you. Um, Leland Brown, Chris Parrish, North American non-lead partnership folks, uh, look them up. Uh, on, the partnership is on the website. There's some resources and materials there. Uh, give them a follow on Instagram as well. 
guys, it was great to see you again, and thanks for thanks for the time that you spent doing some research around this topic tonight on Upland Game Birds. I really appreciate that. That was probably more time than what we've actually talked here for. So, thank you so much for doing that. That just shows your dedication to this whole entire topic of sportsmen leading the way and uh, keeping as much lead out of the ecosystem as possible. Um, thanks for that. Pleasure. Happy to do it. Cool. All right, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.